All right, the shadows, the shadows. Ooh, sometimes a creepy place, right? Uh, I first always think of Peter Pan. How can you not? He's always trying to catch a shadow, right? As a kid, remembering that, um, those moments. Um, how about the, the, how about the people who just seem to sneak up on you? You know what I'm talking about? Like in social settings, you're talking, and all of a sudden you're like, oh my goodness, how do you get there? Hello. And they're, they're always in that posture too. Hi. I was just hiding in the shadows over there waiting for you. Or you, men, just don't be creepy. Don't be hanging out in the shadows as that girl walks by like, hey, how was your night tonight at the table? As you're like in the parking lot. <laughs> She's like, oh my gosh. Under the car. Hi, how are you doing? So... Shadows, creepy. I don't know where I'm going with this. What were we talking about? Um, but a shadow, it's a literal thing, right? It's a literal thing. The definition, a dark area or shape produced by an object coming between the rays of light on that surface. That's what an actual shadow is. All of us have one when light hits off of us and we see that shadow there. It's blocking that light from that surface area. So it's a literal thing, but, but in many ways and probably more than common is that it's used in a descriptive way. It's used to uh, describe something. It's also used as a reference to something. So, so we see that, right? We, we see that it can be something positive. Um, maybe someone says, I'm standing in your shadow, you know, and that's more of a positive context. And, and I, I look up to you and you've done everything and I'm just standing here in your shadow. And there's that. Or just the, the shadow of death and this idea of uh, evil waiting to take place and happen. So we see that. There's many different forms, descriptions, noun, adjective, verb of what a shadow is. Now, when we look in Holy Scripture, when we read the Bible, we see that that's the case as well. Throughout Scripture, a shadow is referred to as something that's positive and sometimes something that is negative. And we're going to walk through all those this evening. We're not going to walk through the whole Bible from beginning to end. Don't worry. Some of you are like, what? So we're not going to do that. But we're going to talk about all the different ways that we see that and, and, and really focus in on what we're talking about from shadow to shadow from shadow to shadow. First thing is that throughout scripture, we see that it's things that are in contrast to God's character, right? A shadow is used in a descriptive way, something that's in contrast to God's character. It can also mean death or the brevity of life. Like life is just a shadow, right? And how quick it is and it's passing and it's going. Um, it can also mean God's presence and protection. You know, I think of Psalm 91, we'll discuss a little later. And I remember as a child, uh, all the way up till I was like 10 or 11 years old, 12, my mom would always pray Psalm 91 over us. Like until the age where I'm like, mom, get out of my room, you know? And that, so you're like, no, I'm 22 and my mom still does that for me. That's okay. That's beautiful. We'll talk later though. Um, <laughs> as long as she's not still making you lunch. You know what I'm saying? Okay. So, but she would sit, she would pray Psalm 91 over me. And it starts off by saying, he who dwells in the secret place of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And just, I, I, I can remember that. That's embedded into my soul, into my mind, into my heart. Those moments that took place there, speaking that over me and how beautiful that was, symbolizing God's presence. But we're going to start at a place where it's more in the negative context, the meaning of it behind when humanity was sent into the shadows. Listen, humanity without Jesus, we are a lost people in the shadows of darkness, wandering around, missing depth, 
missing reality. And it all starts in the beginning, in Genesis, when God creates the heavens and the earth and all that is in it. Then he comes to that point where he creates man and woman in his image. Man was created right there from the dust of the earth as God breathed into him the imago Dei, the image of God put into you and to me to come to life, and there it is. And what's beautiful about that, when you read that account there in Genesis, you see that it's, 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 it's not something that's hidden. It's in the open. It's as if all of creation is watching this moment. It's humanity is made. All celestial beings watching this moment. The angels of heaven witnessing this. God is creating someone in his image. He's imparting his image into them. Man and woman. You and me. And so that takes place. Kind of in one sense a beautiful spectacle for all creation to see. And then slowly as we read further, we hear this term, the fall, which describes the place where sin begins to get inside of man and woman's life and heart and draws them away from God. And it begins by their thinking when they decide they don't have to be or they don't want to be dependent on God anymore. Satan comes, he tempts them, entices them to eat of the fruit that God said not to. But really when you break it down and you read the story, you see that it's not just disobedience that is a part of what takes place, but it begins by them saying, we wanna do it on our own. We wanna do life on our own. It begins by them saying, we don't even want or have any need to be connected to God. A desire to be disconnected to God. Whether naive or not, that is what the core was at their heart. And then it comes from that that disobedience is when they finally take the action behind that initial desire to be disconnected. And there it is. Right in that moment, they eat of the fruit and it says as if their eyes are opened. It's amazing, right? I always say this when we talk about the fall because Satan tempted them, the enemy tempted them by saying, you'll be just like God. But in reality, they were. They were created in his image. All creation knew but yet he tempts them with this lie. Let me tell you something. Lies will take you into the shadows. Lies will pull you and your life into the shadows. Desires, the wrong desires, will pull your life into darkness and into the shadows. And so they partake. And then from that point, their eyes are open. They realize that they're naked. And awareness comes upon them and so they run and they cover themselves up and then God comes walking into the garden suddenly God arrives on the scene and he's looking for them looking for Adam and Eve his creation his children and they're hiding from him and he says why are you hiding from me why are you hiding? And Adam says, because we were naked. He says, who told you you were naked? And then from there, we see everything take place. All of a sudden, because of this now, because sin had entered in, because there was now a divorce between humanity and God, they were separated, a schism created because of the choice, all coming from a desire to be disconnected. Now from that place, God says, this is what has to take place. I'm gonna have to push you out of the garden 
I'll put an angel, a cherubim in front that will guard it. Now there will be suffering. Now there will be pain because you disconnected from me. Because that disconnection caused you to disobey and because of that now there's a separation between us. And humanity is then cast into the shadows, into darkness, divorced from the presence of God. Cast into the shadows, lost in the shadows. And we see throughout reading the Old Testament genealogy and stories that there were a few who still in one sense kept their eyes looking, peering towards the light, the good old days, the promises that hopefully God would restore. But humanity is in a dark and confusing place. Things grow darker and darker in the shadows. Creepy things happen in the shadows. Bad things begin to grow in the shadows. So we see at the time of Noah that there's descriptions that this generation there is an evil generation, overwhelmed in darkness. And we see beyond that, hundreds of years later, then we see Abraham, a man who's called by God. Suddenly we begin to see the plan of God unfolding to bring humanity back to him, to bring humanity out of the shadows of darkness and disconnection from him. And out of Abraham, the people of Israel are birthed, the Jewish people. God begins to call his lost children out of the shadows. And he raises up a man named Moses, very unlikely man to be a leader, a very unlikely man to bring forth the law, but he chooses Moses to do that. Moses obeys him, delivers the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. We know, many of us know that part of the story, but out of Moses and his obedience comes the law we read about the law and the Torah, the first five books of our Bible. I mean, the law is there in one sense in this way, like a light that is shining in a dark world that humanity and God's people could look at and begin and try to pursue, but yet still lost in the shadows. It's actually at this point that they build something called a tabernacle. Tabernacle meaning a place of dwelling. That God says, build a tabernacle, a basically a beautiful big tent. Many layers and compartments there where there in that place I will dwell among my people. And so a tabernacle is built. I just want to give a little quick um, story behind that of what that looked like. There the tabernacle once a year a priest, the high priest would go in there and he would make an atonement for all the sins of the people for that whole year. It would happen once a year. He would go into a place called the Holy of Holies. That's the innermost place. And he had to do a, a ceremonial cleansing for it. Everything, and only he could go in there. And we, he would walk in there and before he got in there, first there was the sacrifice, and then he would take the blood. And I know you hear this, and you're like, well, it seems so barbaric, but hear me. Humanity's lost in the shadows, and God's giving the law, trying to direct a lost people and generation out of darkness and into his light. But there's a process that's taking place there. And so he would go in once a year. He would then take that blood, and he would go to the place they called the mercy seat. There, interesting enough, those cherubim wings again are there made out of gold on the Ark of the Covenant. You see Indiana Jones, anyone? Lost, Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? 
like the scariest movie you ever saw when you were 11 years old and people's faces are melting. And now you watch it, you're like, it's just like a watermelon. That's just a watermelon. But at that time, you're like, Wah! right? Moments where my dad's like, oh my gosh, I forgot about that part, you know? I'm like, seven years old, whoa. Um, so <laughs> so he, he goes in there, the high priest, there on top of the ark, the mercy seat. He drops the blood and says, God forgive us and the atonement of all the people once a year. Now it's interesting. Remember Psalm 91 I told you about. They say that Moses was most likely the author of it. And in Psalm 91.1, he says this, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. It's interesting because at that time, once a year, they were going in there and they were taking shelter in the presence of God to receive forgiveness for what they had done. And it just happened in a moment. Just a moment. One moment a year. Only one person could go in the presence of God. Sins be atoned for and leave. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. There, finding that rest, finding that forgiveness. It's interesting, though, because you see then a series, a progression of thousands of years, these traditions held. Constantly, humanity, the Jewish people, the Israelites, seeking and looking to that distant light, to find God, but yet also still lost in those shadows. Once a year, being able to have one person connect with God in that deep way. Yeah, there's prophets and there's those who are risen up and God's spirit falls upon them, but still man is lost and cast in the shadows. You know, our life might have some shadows, I don't think much has changed in humanity from even thousands of years ago when you look around now. People might seem like they have it all together, but when you dig a little deeper, right, you find out that there's some places in their life, some dark places, some corners they don't like to go into, lives that are surrounded by darkness. My question for many of us tonight is wherever you're at on your spiritual journey, some of you who love Jesus and you've been walking with him, some of you who are just discovering, you've just accepted him into your life. You've surrendered your life to him. Just recently, you're learning about this. Others of you who don't even know Jesus in that way, but yet something keeps drawing you to come here. And that's the Holy Spirit in his presence. But wherever you're at, you know, I think there's areas we try to hide from the presence of God. We try to hide from his presence. Like Adam and Eve when they knew they did something wrong, when something didn't feel right, they hid from the presence of God. So my question to you is, as we talk about this tonight, would you open up your heart and say, Lord, show me where the shadows are in my life. Show me the places that I'm choosing to hide from you. The places I'm kind of ashamed of. Places I don't like to look at. You know, it's interesting because we can live in the shadows still. We can willingly do that. And that's a dangerous place. Like I said, that's a place where things begin to grow and things begin to fester and they're not pretty. And at some point, the light is gonna hit them. At some point. But you know, also, there's a shallow life in the shadows. This is what I mean. Plato's allegory of the cave. You guys, are, 
You've studied that. Most all of you probably have in high school. You've studied that in, in college if you took some philosophy courses. You studied Plato's allegory of the cave, right? This whole idea of just kind of a picture, if you've seen that picture. There's prisoners who are chained. They're in a cave. They're chained, and they can't move their heads, and they're looking at the wall of a cave, okay? And behind them, there's a fire, and behind that fire, and in between the fire and them, there's like a puppeteer, right? And he's showing objects and things in front of that flame, and it's casting a shadow on that wall. And those people are seeing that. And that's how they're perceiving their reality, right? They're looking there, and they mistake appearance for reality. Oh, and that's what he's talking about. Now, now I want to take that, and I want to bring that into the spiritual context, because there's so much truth in there. There's so much biblical truth even in that whole picture, looking at forms and real forms and what that means. But let's just take that statement, if you really summed it up. They're mistaking appearance for reality. In other words, they're chained there, and they're looking, and they're seeing these shadows, and that's their whole world. They feel they're experiencing reality, but really they're just people who are seeing shadows on a wall. Here's my question. The shallow lives we experience are ones when we look and we mistake certain things for reality. When suddenly we, we search for purpose, we search for meaning, and we search for fulfillment in just things that are shadows. This is what I mean by that. We want love. We want love. And so what we feel love is and what we're looking for and what we're trying to discover the depth of that love in is in some toxic relationship or just sex or just the sexuality of a relationship or the affirmation we find in it, no matter what it really is. And so we keep wondering, why do I keep ending up empty? Why do I keep running to these things and yet it feels as if it's just fluid and water in my hands that I can't get a grip on? Because we're chasing shadows. Chasing shadows. You're looking for purpose. Purpose. You know, I was talking to a, an, an older man this past week. Um, and he's a successful businessman on Wall Street, comes to our church, and just a humble man, loves Jesus so much. And so I was picking his brain, and I said this. I said, tell me, you're on Wall Street, you're in the financial center of the world. You probably see a lot of millennials come in. What do you see is one of the biggest things that sticks out to you? And he said, you know what it is? They come, they're driven, they're fired up, they're ready. And they start doing their work thing for a while. And then suddenly he says, it's like, it's predictable. They start looking and wondering, wait, what's, this big, what's my bigger purpose? He said, you don't see that with other generations. Before, it was like you come and you work. Hey, do 30 years, 35 years, retire, have a great 401k, good investments. You head out. He's like, but these millennials, all of a sudden, it's our generation start looking and wondering, what's the bigger purpose of this? Why am I working so hard to make this money and to be successful? What's, what, there's got to be more to this. What's awesome is I believe that our generation is beginning in one sense to wiggle and try to get out of those chains of things that we see and perceive that the world has said, this is so real and this is good. And we're saying, there's, some, there's a shallowness here. There's an emptiness here. But my question to you is, what are you pursuing? So you're staring and you're looking for purpose. You're working so hard. You feel that that purpose might be in money. Let me tell you something, you can be 80 years old and you can be a millionaire and you can still be holding on to that fluid of purpose because it's not real. We're searching for reality and when it comes down to it, humanity without Jesus is chained up in the shadows 
not tasting of what is real. Jesus came to give us life and life more abundantly, life that is more real than we could ever imagine. Our soul is thirsty for reality. And it starts there in a place of us discovering freedom. So like I said, humanity's cast into the shadows. And there's a prophet Isaiah. He rises up and he says something to the people of Israel. He says this, there will be one who comes and delivers us out of the shadows. One who delivers us from darkness. He'll be the light of the world and he will dwell among us. He'll be Emmanuel, God with us. Remember I told you the tabernacle meant to dwell among. And he says there will be one born of a virgin in Bethlehem who will dwell among us. He'll deliver us out of the shadows and of darkness. And 700 years later after he said that, Jesus arrives. Matthew 4, 13 through 17 gives us a picture when Jesus then, and this is quoted of what Isaiah said, leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and he lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has dawned. And Jesus is saying and reading this, quoting Isaiah, and then from that time on, it says Jesus began to preach, repent, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Brad and Rebecca can head back up here. There was one who was coming to pull us and get us out of the shadows. Now you all know that next Friday is Good Friday, right? And that's when we stop and we peer and we see the cross. We see Calvary and it's bloody and it is painful. Sometimes it's hard to look at, but it reminds us of what Jesus did. It's interesting, the Friday before, right? A week before Calvary before Jesus is hanging there on the cross. You know, he's, he's in the temple there in Jerusalem. And when he's there in the temple of Jerusalem, it's deemed when you read through uh, the synoptic gospels as the cleansing of the temple. And Jesus shows up and he sees what's happening there at the temple and they're, they're selling things and there's corruption. And he just looks and he sees the darkness there in the place that's supposed to be where God's presence is dwelling. And he sees that happening all around darkness, people lost in the shadows, misrepresentation of who God is. And so he begins to flip the tables and he has a true righteous anger as he's flipping those tables and he's saying, what have you done? You've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. You understand what is taking place here. You have this holy of holies where God's presence is supposed to reside and people are just around it, still just lost. They're circling around that place where God's presence dwells, but they're so in darkness and they're not understanding what it's all about. And you can read there and you, and, you, and you see that as he's flipping tables, what's amazing to me is he's also healing the sick. And he's saying, my father's house is a house of prayer. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. This is what it's supposed to be. A place of healing. A place of communion. A place of intimacy. And in one sense, he's saying, you don't even realize it, do you? 
that Emmanuel is right here. I'm here among you. God among us. So, a week later, Jesus is taken to Calvary. He's crucified there in between two thieves. And at the end, before his last breath, he says, it is finished. And once that takes place, it says that that curtain that separated the presence of God from humanity, that kept man in the shadows, was torn. The veil was torn from top to bottom. And I understand this. Now what that was saying was God's presence was available for all. Intimacy, restoration was ready to take place again between God and man. Suddenly humanity that was lost in darkness and the shadows now could approach that place, that mercy seat, and we could approach it just as we are and come and experience that eternal mercy in our life again. No longer was it something just once a year that would take place, but now it could be something daily, that connection. Now that desire to be connected with God, to rely on him, He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. See, now man was taken out of the shadows of darkness, and now, in one sense, we embraced being in the shadow of the Almighty, standing close to God, right next to Him. If you stand in someone's shadow, you have to be really close to them. Remember as a little kid, your dad or your mom would be standing outside the suns and you see their shadow and you try to jump into it, right? And stand there. Was I the only one who did that? Maybe I was. But I had to be close to them and with them. And so because of what Jesus does and he comes and he restores and he gathers us in and he says, no longer are you lost in the shadows, but now I bring you in. Now we can abide in his shadow, the shadow of the Almighty, not once a year through someone else and their atonement, but now through our intimacy with him. Would you stand up this evening? Listen, I feel that God was saying this tonight. Some of you are living life in the shadows. Some of you have places of darkness in your life. My encouragement to you is draw near to him, for there's no longer a veil that separates you from his mercy. Because of what Jesus has done, because of the blood that he shed on that cross, because of that, nothing separates you from embracing his mercy and being enveloped by him. That we would be a people who would find our strength in the shadow of God Almighty. And he wants you there. No longer wanderers in darkness, but finding great peace and strength in his presence and his light. Jesus, you are the true reality. See, when we embrace you, Lord Jesus, then we embrace reality at its fullest. We understand purpose because you are with us. You are the hands that feed us the bread of life, gives us the water that will never thirst again, allows us to see the scale of what really is worth it, and what will just turn to dust. You bring freedom, Jesus. Because of your brokenness, you've given us freedom.
You've pulled us out of shadows, out of places of pain and darkness, and you've enveloped us with your presence. So I just pray even tonight, Lord, as we worship, as we respond to what you're doing, that we would open up our hearts. We would understand how good you are, how faithful you are. We would find our fortress in the shadow of the Almighty because nothing is hindering us from your mercy and your forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's just worship and just respond to whatever God's doing in your heart, in your life.